Welcome to the Bishop's Barbecue, featuring preacher, pastor, activist, radio talk show host, and author Bishop Talbert Swan. The Bishop's Barbecue is a family conversation about politics, religion news, and current events. It's truth served hot off the grill with no raisins in the potato salad. Welcome to the cookout. Barbecue, another edition of Conversations on Race in America. Uh, tell a friend, tell somebody the bishop is on the air as usual. Um, we'll be telling it like it is through cultural idioms and nuances that shape the order, ethos, and chaos of the African American experience. Words have their own vitality, they shape their own consciousness and create their own context for interpreting social and spiritual reality. The spoken word contains the power to reshape the landscape of society. Listen, welcome to the cookout. There will be no raisins in the potato salad, just truth served hot off the grill. I've got three dynamic guests with me on tonight, but what I need for you to do right now, I need for you to like, I need for you to share, I need for you to subscribe, tell a friend, tell somebody we're on the air, getting ready to get into this important conversation. Our subject tonight, uh, we're dealing with a uh, 
Dr. King's last book, and the title of that book was Chaos uh, or Community. Where do we go from here, Chaos or Community? Um, and we're going to flesh that out. And so let me get right down to introducing um, my guest tonight. First guest I have is the Reverend Dr. Otis Moss III. Um, civil rights advocacy is in uh, this gentleman's DNA. Um, he built his ministry on community advancement and on social justice activism. He is the senior pastor of the Trinity United Church of Christ in Chicago, Illinois. He spent the last two decades practicing and preaching a black theology that unapologetically calls attention uh, to the problems of mass incarceration, uh, environmental injustice, economic inequality. He's part of a new generation of ministers committed to preaching a prophetic uh, message. Native of Cleveland, Ohio, he's an honors graduate of Morehouse College, uh, earned a Master of Divinity from Yale Divinity School and a Doctorate of Ministry from Chicago Theological Seminary. Um, prophetic preacher, uh, author, his sermons, articles, you can find them in publications all over, uh, Sojourner's Magazine, African American Pulpit Journal, uh, to name a few uh, his own books. I am so delighted and glad to have him um, with us on tonight. And I want you to welcome uh, my first guest, Reverend Dr. Otis Moss. Dr. Moss, how you doing? I'm wonderful, Bishop. It's good to be with you this evening. Absolutely glad to have you with us today. Uh, my next guest is uh, the, the Reverend Dr. Uh, Kevin Cosby. Um, Dr. Cosby, uh, earned a bachelor's degree from Eastern Kentucky University in Richmond, a Master of Divinity degree from the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Doctor of Ministry from United Theological Seminary in Dayton, Ohio. Since 1979, he has served as the senior pastor of St. Stephen Church in Louisville, Kentucky. In 1997, Dr. Cosby encouraged the church to purchase and convert the original four-acre campus of Simmons University, now Simmons College of Kentucky, to be used as a lifestyle enrichment campus. The campus was once home to Simmons University, the oldest Black-owned and operated educational institution in the state of Kentucky. It had been lost to foreclosure um, during the Great Depression, uh, but Dr. Cosby uh, revitalized uh, efforts around uh, that school. He is now the president of Simmons College of Kentucky, uh, a dynamic preacher in his own right, and it is my distinct pleasure to have him uh, with us on tonight. Welcome, Dr. Cosby. Thank you so very much. I'm so honored to have been asked to participate. Thank you, Bishop. And my third guest is the Bishop W. Darren Moore. Bishop Moore is a native of Mount Vernon, New York, money earning Mount Vernon. He began his college education at Livingstone College, uh, graduating from Purchase College in Purchase, New York with a Bachelor of Arts degree in psychology. Theological studies were done at Yale University Divinity School, uh, receiving the Master of Divinity from United Theological Seminary and his Doctor of Ministry from UTS as well. Uh, he is uh, active and has been active in the AME Zion Church and has served churches in Monroe, North Carolina, um, in Greensboro, North Carolina, 
in Indianapolis, Indiana. Uh, while in Greensboro, he served on the commission for the Greensboro Coliseum and the County Commission on Children and Youth. He has served two terms as president of the board of directors for the Greater Indianapolis Church Federation. He was the presiding elder in the Indianapolis district for the AME Church. In 2012, he was elevated and consecrated to the episcopacy in the AME Zion Church, the 99th bishop in succession. He, he served as the AME Zion Church uh, as vice chairman of the Harriet Tubman Board, treasurer of the New York Conference, chairman of the New York Conference Board of Trustees, presiding elder of the Bahamas uh, Nassau District, uh, and now he is a presiding bishop. He has been selected as the morning preacher for the Hampton Ministers Institute, preacher par excellence, former president of the National Council of Churches, Wealth of Information. Uh, I'm glad to have him with me on today. Uh, how you doing, Bishop Moore? I'm great, Bishop, and thank you for all of that information about me. It made me exhausted. <laughs> well, you know, you know, I was, um, I had Dr. Juwanza Kanjufu at my church some years ago, and and I'm up introducing him. I'm thinking, you know, I'm trying to do justice to an accomplished man like this, reading his bio, and he slowly, surely gets out his seat and he walks up to me and he puts his arm around my shoulder. Uh, and basically shuts the introduction down. Uh, I feel like that every now and then as well. Uh, but, but to do just to the many accomplishments of you gentlemen, I, I just wanted to share um, uh, some of that uh, with our audience. So let me let me try to frame this this conversation in this way. Um, we've got the COVID nineteen pandemic uh, that is disproportionately affecting Black people, in particular people in color. Uh, in general, uh, it's an issue of social justice. Uh, police brutality has sparked worldwide protests. Social uprising um, is a symptom of a, basically of a lopsided and discriminatory justice system in what Maya Angelou calls these yet to be United States uh, of America. Um, we reached a breaking point at the murder of George Floyd uh, at the hands of a police officer who knelt on his neck for eight minutes and 46 seconds. Um, this invention of skin color uh, based chattel slavery was the root of America's original sin of racism. Uh, and so here we are now uh, dealing with a dual pandemic, the pandemic of COVID and cops. Uh, we, we, we're dealing with uh, virus and violence. We're dealing with pandemic uh, and police. Uh, what are your thoughts on what's going on in our nation today with everything that is happening? And juxtapose that against that that question that Dr. King wrote in his last work. Where do we go from here? Where does America go from here in the midst of everything that's happening? And let me start with you, Dr. Moss. Well, first, again, thank you for, for allowing me to be a part of this conversation, especially with two gentlemen. I have absolute deep admiration and respect for the ministry they've done. I have witnessed and watched and listened to sermons after sermons by both of them. 
uh, and and they have truly influenced uh, my, my ministry. So I, it's just, first of all, it's just a real delight, Bishop, just to be uh, to be on here and the work that you are doing. I, I wanted to uh, to say that at the outset. The challenge for uh, for, for those uh, who, who live in this space we call uh, America is, and I'm reminded because I had a conversation with Dr. Eddie Gold yesterday, and we were talking about James Baldwin. Is that America lives a lie, holds on to that lie, and refuses to recognize uh, that it is living in this in this mythic world. In order for uh, America to become a yet-to-be United States of America, it has to cease to be the current America and become something that it's never been, uh, number one. There would have to be, there has to be a third reconstruction. Uh, we have the first reconstruction uh, immediately following emancipation period, which interestingly enough, when, when black folk were elected to, uh, to offices in South Carolina and Georgia and Louisiana, you had one of the, some of the highest levels of governmental efficiency that we have seen since the United States was in existence, but that's this little side point. Then you have the second reconstruction where we're talking about what we call the civil rights movement. Now we have a reconstruction and reckoning today. And if America is to move to a new space, America has to cease being America the way it is. Um, and those who claim to be white uh, must confront their whiteness. Uh, and when I say that, I say that they must jettison whiteness and reclaim ethnicity because whiteness is solely a wage and a social construction uh, that is created in direct relationship to blackness uh, as, as a hierarchy. And I believe that that's really the starting point for, uh, for, for, for a conversation. Mm. Bishop Moore, um, jettisoning whiteness. Uh, Dr. James Cone said something that it, in order for white folks to be saved, they've got to they've got to cease being white and become black. Um, um, what are your thoughts on that in terms of uh, this whole notion of jettisoning whiteness in order to come to a better space and understanding in this nation? Yeah, absolutely. But um, let me first of all uh, add my voice to that of my brother uh, Otis and thanking you for inviting us to uh, this barbecue. Uh, bishop uh, Talbot Swan is the baddest and boldest bishop in all of America. And uh, I'm just uh, privileged to be on a panel with uh, two of the most distinguished uh, intellectuals in the church today. They are both prophets of the first magnitude, uh, but they're pragmatic prophets, they're practical prophets who are engaging in the day-to-day -day work of pastoral ministry in transformative ways. Both of these brothers are pastoring in the hood, so they've got street creds, they're legitimate, and yet they're one of the most insightful thinkers uh, that I know in this country, and I'm very proud uh, to call them both friends. I also brought my hot sauce because you said this was a, a barbecue and I knew it was going to be hot up in here. And so uh, I brought it along with me. Um, yeah, Genesis whiteness is at the, the core of this conversation because 
when we talk about where do we go from here, we honestly don't have a shared vision of the destination. And so all of this conversation about reconciliation and working together uh, and um, developing coalition and allies, before you can discuss uh, how we get there, we've got to talk about where the there is, because the truth of the matter is uh, for many whites in this country, uh, they do not want to reimagine how America's founding ideals and documents need to be actualized in, um, in our day and age. Uh, all they want to do is to turn down the temperature. Uh, I have contended for some time that many whites in America have the goal of stopping cruelty uh, and majoring in civility, uh, but not being bold enough to really deal with the issues of equity, which is the essential element in order to reach true human dignity. Most white people that I've been in dialogue with really just want to engage in civil conversations. And the reason that the George Floyd video where he was publicly lynched with a uh, policeman kneeling on his neck uh, for eight minutes and 46 seconds is that it shocked their sense of consciousness. And it was a blatant act of cruelty that was thrown into their face. And so as a result, they're saying, okay, what can we do to get back to civility? What can we do to turn down the temperature when we who are on this panel and many across the country are saying, no, we don't want to get back to some perceived superficial civility. We're talking about reimagining and restructuring uh, how America interacts, uh, particularly with black uh, people in this country. And uh, in order to do that, uh, Dr. Moss is absolutely right. There's gotta be rejection of whiteness as a category. And interestingly enough, just today, the Washington Post changed its editorial policy so that now uh, white can be capitalized uh, because they recognize it as a cultural identity. And so every time we take a step forward, we take, a, we take two steps backwards. Dr. Cosby, last week uh, I had D.O. Hughley on the barbecue and he said that the reason why we've seen so many uh, white folks and others that have gathered in these spaces um, in protest against injustice in America in solidarity with black people is because that particular video, that harrowing video of his murder ridded them of all of their excuses and lies. That they can no longer say, well, if he would have just complied, if this would have happened, if that would have happened. What was so different about what happened to George Floyd that has galvanized such a cross-section uh, across America? Well, again, I want to join my colleagues in thanking you for inviting me and uh, for facilitating a much needed conversation, especially among uh, churchmen and uh, church people, uh, because I find it quite interesting that this uprising is being led 
by folk who do not readily identify with the church. It is though God is using people outside the church to do the work of the church. And I think that we were so we we were so caught up in in the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel, and we we deviated from the gospel of social justice that Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, taught. Uh, that um, it, it it took uh, folk outside the church to. Uh, to inaugurate, initiate this this movement, um, I think that um, I think that there was some antecedents to the, um, the 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 martyrdom of George Floyd that made the moment possible. Uh, I think the antecedent that made the moment possible was the emergence of a new black media. I believe that mainstream media uh, was more of a petty bourgeoisie media that did not address the critical issue of the forgotten masses who were stuck in poverty since King died April 4th, 1968. And what emerged through uh, the internet was a new black media that spoke to the unique experience of the same group of people that Dr. King gave his life for in Memphis, and those are sanitation workers. And I think that to some degree, the entire civil rights industry deviated uh, from the path that Dr. King was on uh, when when he died. Uh, so I think that while everyone was excited about George, I mean, was galvanized because of the depth of, of George Floyd, that, you know, there was for years uh, black media through the internet, podcasts, that was helping to radicalize black people and the black masses and uh, so I think that that uh, George Floyd's death simply ignited what was already there and was brewing. Uh, I do think, however, that while there has been much emphasis placed on the police, I think that we make a mistake just to place emphasis on the police. When you think about many apolis, that very city, many is named for the river, and polis literally means city. It's the Greek word for city. Indianapolis, city of the Indians. Indianapolis, city of Anna, Lord Baltimore's wife, Minneapolis. And from that word polis, you get several words. The word politician, the word politics, the word police, the word policy, and the word pose all come from the one Greek word, which is in Minneapolis, uh, and that is polis. I think we are making a huge mistake if we focus only on one of the five, which to me 
is not as consequential as the politician, the policies, and the politics. And I think that the police, uh, in a sense, just reinforce, and they're there to protect what the politicians and the policies are. Um, so my focus is much, much broader than just the police. It's, it's policies. And it's all rooted, in my opinion, in the total maldistribution of wealth and the need to atone for 246 years of slavery, another 100 plus years of semi-slavery called Jim Crow. So, so uh, on that point, Dr. Cosby, the at the time of Dr. King's writing, he thought that it was time for black people to start focusing on jobs, higher wages, decent housing, um, education that was equal to that received by whites, and and basically a guarantee that the rights that were allegedly won um, in the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Voting Rights Act of 1965 would be enforced uh, by the federal government. Um, and he warned that the persistence of racism in depth and the dawning awareness uh, that black demands would necessitate some structural changes in society. Uh, and here we are all these years later, still saying we need those structural changes that has to focus on each of those points that you were talking about. Gentlemen, how do we get to that point where we simultaneously challenge the police and politics and policy and all of those other uh, areas? Floor is open for any of you. Well, I'll just jump in. Um, but I think that historically we, we have been uh, continually dealing with these issues, confronting uh, these particular issues. And as Dr. Cosby stated, there is a particular system that, that is in place, structural inequality. And the beauty of Dr. King's movement uh, and the movement of, of Ella Baker, and the movement of Fannie Mae and Gaynor Justin uh, and James Warren and others, was that as they came to the Poor People's Campaign, it was a recognition of racial justice, it was a recognition of uh, economic inequality, and the militarization in America. In other words, the budget of America is a moral document. It demonstrates the values and where we place emphasis. There is a need for the church to be in partnership with Black Lives Matter. Mm. There is a need for the church to be in partnership with people dealing with environmental justice. There is a need uh, for us to be in partnership with people who are progressive talking about policy and economic equity. Uh, we are in a space uh, where the church is being asked, are you the church? of Christ, or are you simply uh, a space of capitalism in ecclesiastical garments? And we have to be able to answer that question. And historically, we have 
Presently, we can. In order to move into a new space, we've got to teach organizing. We've got to teach policies. We've got to uh, begin to teach economic critique. And we've got to ground ourselves, speaking from the church side, ground ourselves in a theology that is not deeply rooted nor bows down or idolizes Western frameworks of the way the world uh, functions. Uh, there is a danger in white evangelical theology that jettisons all social justice. There is a danger in white evangelical theology uh, that is birthed out of the Confederacy and has a deep love for the Southern strategy, which put us into the place today where we have Trump in office. We don't need to focus solely on Trump. We need to know the mechanism that made Trump, that put him in place. And we cannot solely focus and say that it is solely one party also. Um, because we change presidents, but we never change economic advisors. Mm. So the same person who ran the Federal Reserve mm. under uh, Bush, same person, <laughs> continues under the, uh, the next administration. That Alan Greenspan was advising Clinton and Bush. Uh, and the, the Republican Party was very smart in recognizing that if we are to shift uh, the tenor and values of the country, we can you can elect who you want to elect, but give me judges and let me have control of the Federal Reserve and ensure that I um, partner with people who are bankers and create white resentment for any type of policy uh, that uh, in any way, shape or form shows any preference for the poor. And let me get the church to join in on that. And that was part of the Southern strategy uh, that had extended uh, from uh, McGovern uh, and Goldwater until today. Yeah. We, I mean, we add to analysis. No, go ahead. Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, I, I, I thought you, uh, I, I didn't know that was a semicolon. I thought it was a period, but I wanted to, <laughs> I just wanted to jump in there because you are so on point. Uh, and uh, not only does it have to do with the Federal Reserve and the lack of addressing uh, systemic poverty and racism in this country, but it also deals with militarism. You talked about a budget being a moral budget. 54% of this, the federal budget is spent on the military, uh, which leaves the balance to deal with everything else, housing, um, poverty, uh, uh, health care, the deficit, everything else has to, uh, be dealt with in um, the remaining uh, of that budget. Uh, I often hear people talking about, we've never been through this before. Well, in some ways they're absolutely correct. This is an unprecedented health crisis. In our lifetimes, we've never uh, faced anything like COVID-19. Absolutely, this is a devastating, unprecedented, uh, financial crisis for our lifetime. Uh, you've never had the entire economy shut down like it is now. But the racial dimension is not unprecedented. Uh, in fact, if anything, it is a reoccurring narrative throughout the entire stream of American history. So we as a people have continually lived through the issues of racism. They just 
uh, tend to come to the forefront for uh, more Americans to be conscious of it at certain hot times, but we live with a constant low-grade trauma of being Black in America that is uh, consistent. And so uh, I am reminded of uh, uh, Revelation chapter 2, verse 29, where it says, he who has ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Well, what is the Spirit saying to the church in this day and age, which is consistent with what the DNA of the Black church has been? Uh, Dr. Cosby, my friend, is absolutely right in the critique uh, that the church has slipped into this superficial cotton candy, uh, pie-in-the-sky theology, name it, claim it, too blessed to be stressed, too anointed to be disappointed, uh, kind of mamby-pamby uh, uh, theology. When the fact of the matter is the black church was birthed out of struggle. The black church has in our DNA liberation. And so ear, having ears to hear, we need the right ears, E-A-R-S, E-A-R-S. We need education, agitation, reparation, and then sanctification. What do I mean by that? Education. We have got to constantly educate first our people because our people are grossly undereducated, miseducated. The miseducation of the black people is a continuing struggle. And we've got to continue to educate our people. That's why the black church is so essential. Not just any black church but the black church who is rooted in the heritage of a Richard Allen and uh, a James Barrett and the Sojourner Truth and Harriet Tubman and Frederick Douglass. We need radical black churches that are engaging in constant education of our people and then agitation. The problem we had, uh, as uh, Otis and I were talking on another call, the problem with the uh, Obama administration is that we were so intoxicated by the celebration of the election of the first black president that we failed to continue our agitation. We failed to push him and his administration to address the issues of black America. And in fact, and I, I've got to confess this being the case, that when I saw the right wing mach machinery coming after the first black president and his family and the names that he was being called and his birth records being challenged, that we as a people, you know black folk, you know mama and them, you know auntie and them, they're gonna surround the wagon. We, so we went to have his back and did not call on him to reciprocate to have our back. And so, um, we've got to constantly engage in education, agitation, then reparative justice, reparations, and then sanctification, a lived truth. And it's a constant struggle. It's not a sprint. It's a marathon. E-R-E-A-R-S. Uh, let, let, right. let, let me ask this, uh, Dr. Cosby. Dr. Moss talked about the church being in partnership with the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, the late Dick Gregory said, anytime the black community gets in trouble, it calls on the church and the NAACP. For the first time in history, uh, we see a 
generation of activists that are neither connected to the church nor any civil rights organization. I, I see some similarities in the rise of the black power movement during Dr. King's day, whereas folks like Dr. King embraced the term black power, um, but they rejected some of the methods um, of that particular movement. I, I think we have that dynamic even going on today where uh, black preachers and, and, and people in the black church will say, yes, we agree that black lives matter, but we have a problem with the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, how do we bridge that gap so we don't repeat some of the missteps of the past in terms of collaborating and galvanizing our community so that we work together to bring about this justice that we're seeking? Uh, well, we're talking about a, a central theme in the scriptures. Uh, and that's the, the, the theme of justice. Walter Brueggemann says that justice is the art of finding out what belongs to who and giving it to them. That's what justice is. If you steal my car on Monday and you get saved on Tuesday and you're still driving my car on Wednesday, then you were not saved on Tuesday. The sign that you're saved on Tuesday is not only you're going to bring my car back, but you're going to bring it back with a full tank of gas and washed. It's, it's Zacchaeus. Now, what is interesting when we talk about justice in the Bible, that there are two Hebrew words for justice. One has to do with a general justice in terms of how society is structured or might be called class justice. And that is the Greek, the Hebrew word misfot. And then the, there's a more narrow specific justice that targets a specific people who have been damaged. And that's Sadiqwa. So mm -hmm. when, when when uh, Zacchaeus said, when he repented, when he engaged in metanoia, the Greek word, he had he functioned on two levels. He said, a half of my goods I give to the poor. That's mishpat. That's class-based justice. But it went on to say, if I have defrauded any man that's specific, more narrow, I will repay them fourfold. That's Sadiqwa. The problem that I have with many of the movements um, is that it does not narrowly define justice for black people. Um, and by black people, I am referring to black people who are the descendants of enslaved Jim Crow, Jane Crow, redlined, lynched black people. Now, while many people talk about Black Lives Matters, and I, res I res respect whatever group anyone wants to participate in, um, I am a um, strong participant in the ADOS movement, the American Descendants of Slavery movement, uh, with Yvette Carnell and Antonio Moore, who who have shaped so much of my thinking and who have mentored me. And I, I think that they are on point in the sense that 
we need to be more specific and narrow in terms of addressing black issues, black justice. What does justice look like, not on an intersectional level? And if it's going to be intersectional, then I'm looking for black intersectionality. I'm looking for black gays who are the descendants of slaves. I'm looking for black atheists, black agnostics, uh, just as long as you are the descendant of slaves. I think that we have a unique justice claim. And I'll close with this. When I say justice, I'm talking about J. No one can, say, can spell justice like black folk. Justice J, Jim Crow. No one but black people experienced Jim Crow legally. You, urban renewal, which is Negro removal. No one but us experienced urban renewal. S, slavery, 246 years of labor without a paycheck. Uh, T, terrorism and lynching. I, incarceration, mass incarceration that targeted us, which the Democrats did, the, 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 the neoliberals. Uh, C is courts and cops, and E has to do with just exclusion. And we are old. We have a specific justice claim. And I'm, I'm like uh, Stokely Carmichael. Stokely Carmichael and Kwame Ture in his book, Black Power, Chapter 3, talks about coalition building. And he says it's okay to be a part of a coalition as long as your specific, tangible, measurable, quantifiable issues are being addressed. And uh, I will be willing to, you know, if I'll partner with anybody as long as that is, that is the objective. And ultimately the objective is one thing. To me, it's putting money in black folks' pockets. It's not charity, it's reparations. We are 13% of the population. We only control 2.6% of the wealth. We have no wealth. We are deserving of wealth because we built the country. And I think that that must be the focus. I think that that George Floyd, they, they hate us because we're black, but they mistreat us because we're poor. And we're poor because we have been socially engineered uh, out of wealth. And I think that for the rest of my life, I'm gonna be trumpeting reparations for the American descendants of slavery. Dr. Moss, how how do we bridge the gap, the, the generational gap between the civil rights generation, the Black Lives Matter generation, this hashtag generation that has risen up um, in the last few years? And how do we, and this will go to all of you, how do we regain the prophetic voice of the church and reestablish its credibility in the public sphere when so many have now begun to look at the church as part of the very establishment that it's fighting against. I, I would I would add this uh, to that. Okay. That uh, when we speak of Black Lives Matter, I think one thing that we need to uh, to add to our conversation is they are not 
in the church, uh, but they are also of the church. So the three founders, one of them is doing a master's in theology, was a part of a particular church uh, that had no justice claim whatsoever and had to find a community uh, outside of the church because she heard the words of Jesus and saw the practice of the people and they did not fit. The second thing is, is that there has always been generational tension. That's a part of development. Anybody who's got children knows this. Uh, that's just a part of, of development. What is needed is that we need to reclaim the position of being wisdom offering elders and not controlling um, committees of hierarchy. Those in the street, we partner with Black Lives Matter and BYP 100 and Asada's Daughters here at Trinity. Matter of fact, a lot of them go here, uh, interestingly enough. And when we show up, when people from this church um, and other communities show up, the excitement is palatable. Because again, the, these are incredibly uh, intelligent young folks uh, who are like, you say you follow Jesus and they will quote, you know, Jesus on you. Uh, and so there, there is a real need for, for us to, uh, to, to rebuild these partnerships and also accept the critiques and recognize that with all of the beauty within the church, there is much contradiction in the church, not because of the a fallacy in reference to the message of Christ, uh, but because humanity has touched the message and created doctrines that are destructive instead of rooting ourselves in love and compassion and in justice. Uh, and and that, has, that has happened uh, over over the years, over and over again, um, where we have excluded so many different people from the church, and there is a, there is church trauma uh, that happens to some people. Uh, but we we are in a special moment. The pandemic, which is fascinating to me, has forced preachers who've never considered speaking about justice. They got to mm -hmm. because prosperity preaching cannot work in a space where you have to deal with someone having a knee on their neck for eight minutes and 46 seconds. Uh, you can't just say, I'm going to name it and claim it when mm. federal officers are sent to your city. You all of a sudden have to realize that some of the young people can be our mentors. And what's fascinating to me is that they are also, they will always lift up the luminaries of our tradition. Right. So, so they love, this is interesting now, Black Lives Matter loves Ella Baker, Fannie Lou Hamer, Bernard Rustin, Martin Luther King Jr., James, I mean, you can go down the list. And they have meetings where they teach what they taught. They lift up 
Harriet Tubman, Frederick Douglass, Sojourner Truth. They lift up Ida B. Wells and Nanny Helen Burroughs. Many of whom are ignored in some churches. Yes, but but now that isn't interesting that they have, if they were to create a church, they would be on the, they would be the stained glass in the stained glass windows um, because they honor those particular people and they keep raising the question. Said, I, I'm not, I said, I ain't got a problem with Jesus. I got a problem with the church. And they keep raising that question and we don't hear them. We don't hear them. Why as a woman can I not be in leadership? Why as a person who is queer, you can read Baldwin, but Baldwin can't be in your church. So, so, so I, they're raising these questions and they said, I just want an answer. I, you know, I, I want you to partner with me because the death that comes, the bullet that comes, the chokehold comes. Cops don't ask, are you Baptist? And cops do not ask, uh, uh, are you UCC or AME? They see and your, your, your skin has been weaponized and they immediately operate under a lie of social construction and the mythology of race. And we have to deconstruct it. And Dr. Cosby, you are absolutely right. As descendants of enslaved Africans, uh, we are not only owed, but there has been a social engineering to ensure uh, that we would not thrive. And this is also another interesting point that I may add. When black people landed on these shores in 1619, we, we were, uh, there was ethnicity and not race. Uh, whites were also uh, indentured servants. And there's something that happened in Virginia known as the Bacon Rebellion. Black people and white people recognize the person who owns the big house is the problem. And that after the Bacon Rebellion is when you saw the, the, the deployment of whiteness as a wage. I won't give you more money but I will make you white, which will make you better than the person that we have invented called the nigger. Psychological way. So, so, you, so you will never then partner with that person to overthrow us. Exactly. And that's what we're seeing deployed right now. This is a continuation of the wages of whiteness, what we are witnessing in America right now. Trumpism is based on the wages of whiteness. He gives, they didn't even dog whistle. He gets a trumpet and says, you're white. You are not like them. This is your country. And in the in the midst of this, his circle steals from everybody, including white folk. So they listen to the QAnon. <laughs> they listen to all these kinds of things, not realizing that there is a, a much sinister system that is in place uh, that is designed to destroy um, not only people of color, uh, but all people who do not find themselves in the, uh, the kleptocracy, the plutocrats of, 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 of this nation. Wow. So let me ask you this, Bishop Moore. So, so and then and then we'll take some telephone calls before we end this. Um, um, Dr. King put put forth a, a prophetic challenge. Um, he said that we're now faced with the fact that tomorrow is today. Um, we're confronted with the fierce urgency of now. Um, and in the unfolding conundrum, 
of life and history, um, there's a such thing as being too late. Um, he basically said procrastination is still the thief of time and that life can leave us standing bare. And he closes out that work, um, where do we go from here by saying, this may well be mankind's last chance to choose between chaos and community. Are we nearing a point in America um, where generation after generation after generation, we keep fighting uh, the same systems, uh, keep fighting for the same thing? Are we reaching a point where we're closing in on our last chance to choose between chaos and community? And I'll throw that out there to you, Bishop Moore, and anyone else who wants to answer that. Um, actually, as a nation, we may be, uh, but uh, I'm a uh, citizen of the realm of God, and therefore I operate in the realm of hope. I hope not in a naive kind of simplistic optimism. Uh, I don't. I don't traffic in optimism, uh, but I am grounded in hope. Uh, hope that is a resilient hope. Um, St. Augustine, who was an African, says hope has two beautiful daughters. Uh, their names are anger and courage. Anger at the way that things are and courage uh, to see that they don't have to always remain the way that they are. Mm -hmm. And so I'm grounded in that hope, that kind of hope that in the face of all the evidence to the contrary, that uh, I keep believing, keep trusting, and keep working until the evidence changes. So therefore, I'm cognizant of the fact that God often does his best work uh, in the midst of chaos, uh, that it is out of chaos that uh, God's uh, creative power is manifest. And so we are in a chaotic time, and I can't proclaim a guarantee that America uh, has not come to face its uh, latter days. But what I can tell you is that uh, where uh, man puts a period, God puts a comma. Where man puts a, a wall, God puts a door. And that there will be a day when justice will uh, ring in uh, this land whether it's called America or not. Now, my, 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 my love for the ideals of what America can be, if it's reframed, uh, pushes me to keep on working uh, within this context. But I must say about the black church, I actually am at a place of hope rather than discouragement, even about the black church, because just like COVID-19, is more deadly to persons who have underlying conditions. There are some churches that will die as a result of COVID-19. We need to acknowledge that I, in my own uh, denomination. But the reality is there are also some ministries that are being uh, revitalized and revived and are coming through this stronger because they're being pushed back into the essentials of what ministry actually is. And that too, is biblical because there's a, a cycle of uh, God blessing the people 
and the people becoming complacent in the blessings of God, and then the people uh, transgressing against God, and then God bringing judgment upon his people, and then the people repenting, and then God sending revival, and then God blessing. And so it is a continuing cycle. And while I do not believe that COVID-19 is a judgment of God, I do believe it has revealed the churches, in many cases, the churches lack of consistency with the gospel because there is no gospel if it's not good news to the poor and to the oppressed. It is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so those churches that are gonna come out of this stronger are those churches who reclaim the essential elements of what it means to be the gospel, uh, to preach the gospel and to live the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so uh, you look at what's happening uh, at uh, uh, St. Stephen in Louisville. You look at what's happening uh, for Trinity uh, in Chicago. You look at what's happening at churches uh, large and small all across this country. They are out of the building, but they are engaged in ministry and connecting with community in ways that they hadn't done in a generation. And I'm actually excited about where God is pushing us to be the church in this day and age. Dr. Cosby? Well, um, I heard uh, a preacher that all of us respect uh, his name is Jeremiah Wright, uh, illustrate that um, what happens when you bake a cake and you forgot to include the sugar? Uh, well, you can attempt to frosting on the cake, but you will never eliminate the fact that the sourness of the cake is baked into the cake. Um, I, I, I subscribe to some degree with some of the critical race theorists that I believe that white supremacy and racism is permanent in America, it's baked into the cake, and that it will never be eliminated. But it can be mitigated, and it can only be mitigated when we are focused on what white supremacy and racism is, namely, racism is the maldistribution of wealth. It's all about wealth that black people do not have. And Dr. King died, when he died, he said, we are going to Washington to get our check. The problem is the black church and civil rights organization experienced mission drift. So we went from segregation to desegregation to integration to disintegration because we went from JJ who lived in Chicago in the, in the projects and then the Jeffersons moved out of the projects and left JJ behind and then the Huxtables took it a step further and forgot all about JJ. And that is what has happened. And what you have now is a revolt, not simply against the white power structure, 
but against the petty bourgeoisie black establishment mm. who has been co-opted many times by the Democratic Party. We love to talk about Trump, but we don't say anything about the Democrats or the neoliberals or Bill Clinton who inaugurated mass incarceration or Joe Biden mm -hmm. whose policies was more injurious to black people than Donald Trump, if you're talking about him being along with Strom Thurmond, the architect of mass incarceration. And the one thing I love about Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. is that he was a prophet and prophets are lonely. He spoke out not only against Nixon, but he was in, he was all into Johnson and Johnson's budget and Johnson's militarism. In fact, the last year of Dr. King's life, he never got invited back to, to the White House. So uh, I close by saying, you know, there was something that came out called the Kerner Report. Yeah. And the Kerner Report came out, the last official document that Dr. King read before he was assassinated because it came out March 1968. And he praised the Kerner Report. And if you read the Kerner Report, he died in April 4th, 1968. The Kerner Report came out in March 1968. It was issued, it started in 67 after the riots of Detroit, after the riots of Detroit and Newark. And on the first page, in fact, you can go online and get a 26 page summary of the Kerner Report, turn to page seven of the Kerner Report, and you're gonna think you're reading 2020, nothing has mm -hmm. changed. Mm -hmm. And this is what it said. It said, we are moving towards two societies, one black, one white, separate but unequal. It also said that what white America fails to realize and, and the Negroes cannot forget is that white society created the ghetto, white society maintains the ghetto, and white society tolerates the ghetto. And that's all about economics. I'm so sick and tired of non-economic liberalism. Mm. I'm so sick and tired of what Benjamin Mays called philanthropic discrimination. Mm. We need our own separate black institutions, black colleges, black businesses, black schools. We need our own black institutions. We need black wealth. We need reparations. And I think that that should be the mission and that's why I said, that's why, you know, and I know they're controversial, but, you know, Jesus was. I, I, that's why I'm, I'm, I'm riding with ADOS because I am, I am dedicating my life to, to a reparation for black descendants of slaves. And if you're not there, you can call yourself LBGT, Me Too, um, African, Ghanaian. If you're not trying to help me, Get my reparations. I don't consider you an ally. Well, let me ask this question. Let me first open up the phone lines for those of you who are out there. Um, and we'll get a couple of questions into our panel. 413-337-1867. 413-337-1867. This is your opportunity uh, to get your questions in. Um, I hold that, that, that Trump is a symptom of a pre-existing condition. Um, and I often tell um, white liberals 
that it was their apathy that created a Trump. Uh, that is, as long as as we were dealing uh, with the same things black folk are dealing with today, uh, but we had a kinder, gentler person um, in office and in authority and, and was not as bombastic and as blatant and as arrogant in their projection of their bigotry, um, that they were comfortable with that as long as they they didn't trigger their their sensibilities and their and their fragility. Uh, they were cool with that. And there are far too many who consider themselves to be allies that are anti-Trump, but they're not anti-white supremacy. They're not anti-racist. They're not anti-black bigotry. How do we deal with folks like that? And then on top of that, then you've got what you alluded to, Dr. Moss, uh, the white evangelicals, um, 10,000 uh, would dare to sign a manifesto to say that uh, social justice is antithetical uh, to Christianity when Jesus came out of the wilderness and said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's anointed me to deal with the poor, the brokenhearted, the imprisoned, the sick, and the oppressed. And how they got to a point of uh, his teachings being um, against social justice, I'll never understand. How do you respond to, to what's happening both among white liberals and white conservatives? Well, I want to say this is that Trump and Obama give liberals a pass. Because when they can say I voted for Obama or I didn't vote for Trump. And that, that's what I like what, what, what Baldwin said. He said that we have moments and where the liberal is brought off the hook and not seeing the full system and their participation in oppression. So I voted for Obama, but guess what? That's what the whole critique of the movie Get Out was about. <laughs> I would have voted for him again. And then there's those, well, I didn't vote for him. I, I, don't, I didn't want him in office, but yet you were also a part of the creation of the system and the cesspool that allows him to rise to, uh, to, to, to power uh, in many ways. Um, the use of uh, the, the Southern strategy. The fact that, and, and I appreciate you, Dr. Cosby, for bringing, bringing this up, the fact that neither party has ever engaged in any serious economic critique outside of reform. In other words, we want to place uh, some new garments on some old mess. And, and so we, we have to um, say to those who claim liberalism or conservatism, that they are part of a particular system. Uh, their whiteness is dangerous and deadly. And until they reject their whiteness and reject the system that undergirds it, white supremacy, um, there really cannot be a full conversation about how a new country can be created. Because as it currently is structured, uh, it is specifically designed uh, for either the death of black people, the exploitation of black people, uh, or the usage of black people as menstrual props to promote a particular ideal. Wow. Uh, so we, we have to uh, deal with, with those particular ideas if we are going to move forward. Uh, the, 
The other piece that I just just want to um, uh, to raise, and, and and I know we weren't talking about defunding the police, but not, but uh, uh, this defund idea is a, what I love about defunding the abolition is a, is a fundamental idea that comes out of critical race theory uh, is that the system is working the way it's supposed to. And the way that police officers are deployed, uh, they are designed specifically out of the old slave patrols. Uh, they function in criminalization for our community, part of a system. And if you go to another community, it's all about public health and public safety. Um, they are part of a, they are a cog in a larger system. We have to have a understanding of critique. Bishop? Yeah, um, my um, argument is that um, America uh, faces uh, the threat of either we totally reimagine how we live out what it means to be a part of this nation, or we are going to uh, be immersed in further chaos. Uh, and that's regardless of who wins in November. Don't invite me to a table and say you're being inclusive, but the table itself is constructed based on white supremacy. So I don't wanna seat at uh, a white supremacist table. Uh, it's the same way that uh, I've articulated with the National Council of Churches, uh, that it is essential that we uh, not just simply change the body sitting around the table, we have to change the design of the table. We've gotta change the structure. White America was so uh, nauseated uh, by seeing a black family in the White House that they vomited and out came mm. Donald Trump. Mm. Uh, reality mm. is uh, that what they perceived by the election of Obama uh, was never about equality, never about equity. Uh, and they saw a black family in the White House and they saw or perceived their whiteness threatened. And as a result, there became this backlash. But the essential elements killing Black Americans did not change. The wealth gap did not decrease. In fact, it increases based on uh, the 2008 uh, meltdown. Uh, the health gap, the education gap, the uh, employment gap, uh, all of the things that deprive Blacks of full participation in the dignity and equity of being an American have not been diminished in recent years, but actually has been exacerbated. And, and that's why, while um, there may be uh, different approaches that we must take, we must all recognize where our gifts are, where our strengths are, but we all must work to a common goal of seeing um, us address this economic gap and reparations, I agree, is the way that we address that. Wow. All right, one, I'll, I'll give you one last chance if you wanna call in 413-337-1867, we're gonna close down the phone lines, but let me, let me round up and ask our panel this question because for so many years, um, we have heard that America is um, 
the moral voice of the world, that, that, that they are the model of democracy, um, that basically they lead every industrialized nation in, in the world. How can America, um, who's leading the world in every life-negating policy, that's, that's leading the world in gun violence, in homicide, in suicide, incarceration rate, especially among black people, in capital punishment, in the glorification of possessing weapons to alienate the rights of certain folk. With all of the corrosive effects all of this has on America, um, with the debilitating effects it has on black and brown people in terms of shelter and health care and living wages and and, and food insecurity and just basic quality of life issues continue to tout itself as the moral authority and moral voice of the world. And is America nearing a point of revolution because people are fed up with the contradiction and the hypocrisy uh, of a nation who looks at itself one way, but in reality is something completely different. Let me start um, by saying this. Black folk are a miracle uh, with all that we've been through. And America's future, just as uh, its history is filled with and defined by how America engages with Blacks in this country. Um, Kevin Cosby does a powerful um, uh, presentation on how America went from the bottom of uh, world powers economically uh, in, um, in the uh, early, um, in the 16 and 1700s to becoming uh, one of the top economic engines, I believe he said number two or three um, by the 1800s. And it was because of uh, cotton and tobacco. And it was because of the uh, cheap labor, uh, because of slavery. So America's economic vitality was built on the back of black people. But not only that, Every war, Blacks have shed blood and have been essential elements in those victories. And then what many people don't really understand is that even when it came to the Cold War, that the major propaganda tool that the old Soviet Union was using to uh, alienate America around the world was its lack of racial justice. And America and many of its leaders began to realize that they could not even address the Cold War effectively until they began to at least put some uh, papering over the issues of civil rights. And so it was civil, the civil rights movement that in fact facilitated America's ability to talk to other nations about the dangers of the Soviet Union, although there was no authentic 
addressing of the issues. There were some uh, papering over of the issues. And you did have the Civil Rights Act of 64, the Voting Rights Act of 65, and the Housing Rights Act of uh, 67. However, the future for America, and this is why I have a sense of hope, because the place we're in right now, the chaos that we're in right now is going to determine whether or not America comes out of this with the possibility of having strength and dignity and respect around the world, but it's powerful that the crisis is intermingled with the coming to the fore of the racial challenge. So they will not be restored by just uh, getting a vaccine for COVID-19. It will not be restored by just simply reopening the economy. America must confront, not in a superficial way, but in a tangible, systemic way, the issues of race in this country and truly closing the value gap between black lives and white lives. And so this is a critical time, as King would say. Uh, tomorrow is today, and we are now facing uh, the urgency of now. If this country does not address this in the now, then uh, it will not be able to live into its future in the way it uh, expects to. Let me slip this call in and then uh, then I'll come to you gentlemen. Uh, Carla, you just get in, you're, you're on the air. I just have a simple question. A lot of facts were shared and information. I just wanna know what takeaway, what, what can we do to go from here? You know, the question is where do we go from here? Some, some kind of application that they can give us? What, what can we do as a community to actually go from where we are to where we need to get to? All right. Thank you for your call, and I'll let them answer. Dr. Moss, Dr. Cosby. Well, I think that um, we we have to start being black again, um, and we have to start advocating for ADOS issues. Um, ADOS has a web page called ADOS101.com that outlines specific tangible things that black people should be calling upon government to do for us. And only government made white America. Uh, white people were poor prior to the New Deal of the 1930s. It was, the, it was what government did, uh, what's his name? Nelson, uh, no, Katz Nelson, this is his last name, wrote a book called When Affirmative Action Was Right. Ira Katz Nelson, when affirmative action was white. And it was, it was white. Whites got social security. Blacks didn't get social security because we were domestic workers and agriculture workers. So the government made white people, the government gave white people suburbs. We, we, did, we were locked out of opportunity and we built the country. And so there is a specific debt that is owed to black people that black people need to be advocating for and that's called reparations i, I tell you and, and you know malcolm x said that you got to be careful about the democratic fox he said we know the republicans are wolf 
He said, you got the Republican wolf, you got the Democratic fox, but both of them are predators. And sometimes the wolf, you know it's a wolf, but the fox come, is very sly and cunning, and but it's still a predator. And I think we got a whole, since we vote overwhelmingly Democrat, and the Democrats don't get in without black votes. It ain't the it's it's not the women, it's not it's the black people who put Democrats in office. And when Joe Biden said that Trump was the first racist president, I'm sitting here thinking, well, that's that's a that's a falsification of history. Uh, America was born in racism. The 1790 Naturalization Act said the only people that can be in 1790, the only people that can be citizens of the United States are white people. 16 of the first 18 presidents of the United States were all white. Uh, everything in America is, 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 I mean, the third verse of the national anthem is mm -hmm. a verse that celebrates slavery. No, no refuge could save the hireling or slave from the terror flying of the depth of the grave. Um, Lincoln was a racist. When you listen to what Frederick Douglass had to say about Lincoln, that the dedication of of uh, the Lincoln, the statute of Lincoln, and he called mm -hmm. us. He said, "We we are Lincoln. We were the stepchildren." And uh, so, there's never been a time. I mean, I don't understand. We've all had nothing but racist presidents who've never made black people whole, including President Obama. And I think that black people need to come together and demand. Now you mentioned Eddie Glaude, who I love, but several years ago he had the courage to say something, which which sounds very Martin Luther Kingish to me. And then he talked about voting down ballot, voting, but voting down ballot. That's, that's it. That is an Eddie Glaude. That's Eddie Glaude. Let's vote down ballot. I'm saying that we must have specifics and tangibles that you give tangibles when 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 uh uh what's her name uh out of she's, she might be the vp what's her name sister um kamala kamala when she says i'm not going to do anything for black people specific for black people well you did it for the, you you had reparations for the japanese you got reparations for for the jews you got specific programs that target specific people, why can't you target with a specific program us? So I think until we can get all of our leadership and we don't, and, 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 and it's a difference when it comes to the CBC, there's a big difference between having elected officials and having representatives. Black mm. people need representation. We love to talk about the Edmund Pettus Bridge, but my God, Look at Selma, mm. the poverty in Selma. They're wrestling with hookworms, hookworms in Selma. And the, the Congresswoman representing Selma, Yvette Carnell called her out and because she was pushing for the dreamers. Well, I thought black people were the dreamers. When Dr. King said, I have a dream, he was, talk he was talking about black people. He was talking about Negroes. We are the original dreamers. I don't want you to skip over me to get to anybody else 
We've done more. We built America. Our, America is America because we made America great. We are free labor built America. Immigrants started coming over this country as a result of the Immigration Act of 1965. You had the Voting Rights Act and the Immigration Act of 1965. They came over, especially during the Reagan administration in 1980, they came over in masses. Black people fix us first. And I think that's what black leadership should be saying. If I was in Congress, that's what I would be saying. That's what, and I love John Lewis, but the one reason, and I don't agree with everything he talks about, but one thing I do love about Louis Farrakhan, and I don't agree with everything he talks about, is Louis Farrakhan was advocating for black people in the 60s. And, and guess what he's still doing right now? He's talking specifically about black people. And we need black people are like sheep without a shepherd. That has been the problem. We mm. don't have shepherds. Wow. We advocate for everybody else but our own people. How can you be in Selma advocating for DACA when you got black people in Alabama, the school systems in Alabama for black people is failing us. Uh, uh, in Mississippi, Parchment Prison, Black men in I mean it's 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 crazy and we need we need a black specific narrow tangible agenda that focuses exclusively on the black people on black people because everybody else has an advocate everybody else has a shepherd we are when Jesus said they like sheep without a shepherd he's talking about black people in Chicago in Louisville he, anywhere you see black people congregating, we're dealing with the same thing. Dr. Moss? Well, I say amen to what uh, Dr. Cosby... I, I, I really needed a, a Hammond B3 right in yeah, there. He's, 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 he's on point with it. I, I don't need to, uh, to to really add to what uh, to what he stated. Uh, I think it's, it's very clear uh, that we have to shore up our community. We have to advocate for our community. We have to build our institutions and the institutions that we do have outside of the church um, are solely supported. If white philanthropic support pulls their funding from just about 99% of our institutions, they will crumble. And that says a lot about our, our leadership. We have to have a level of spirit and consciousness and we can, we have it uh, because we have seen it with our foreparents and with our ancestors who built the institutions that we are allowing to crumble. Cool. Let me let me um, get your final thoughts in, in by asking you this question. Um, what will be the new normal in the post COVID and social uprising season that we're in what, what what will be our new normal what will you hope will be our new normal will will this just be our reaction to this pattern that we're in and then go back to business as usual or will something greater come out of what we're in and let host, can i respond to that bishop go right ahead uh and that is someone has said and i'm quoting someone else but this is not a moment this is a movement this is different than the 60s. And the reason why is because 
this new black media is driving this. This never could have been driven by the church. In fact, I call this generation Generation 491. This is Generation 491. What I mean by that is Jesus said, forgive your enemy seven times seven or 400, 400 and what's 70 times. This 70 is times seven. Yes, sir. This is 471. I mean, 471, 4, 471, 491. This is 491 because no more forgiveness. This generation is a generation that is is driven that that social media has informed black the new black media has informed a new generation has radicalized black people so we've got our inst some institutions that are developing it and hopefully the church will get back will get back to its radicalism we need to re be reading um uh, uh black religion and black radicalism gay right wilmore we need to get back to our radicalism so if we can continue to build our institutions, and those and those five institutions are black colleges. I'm the president of an HBCU. My college is 99% black. That's all we talk about. We're an ADOS institution. We are advocating. I get 60% of my students. 90% 90, 90 of my students are poor, Pell Grant eligible. 60% of my students are black males. And I'm radicalizing them for black people. So we have to have our black educational institutions that are radicalizing our black kids. We have to have a radical black church. Jesse Jackson said, we got too many preachers. They got pictures of Martin Luther King Jr. in the best in, 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 the, in the hallway and Malcolm X in the, in the, in the study, but they preaching Billy Graham and Curtis Jeffries from the pulpit. So we've got to have a radical church Radical education, those are the two institutions. Third institution is black businesses. Fourth institution uh, is black families and black media. We've got to have black media. And you're not going to have those black institutions. You can't strengthen them or sustain them. Those institutions should all be advocating for one thing. Write the check. Pay us. Reparations. Write the check. And I, if we can do that, we won't eliminate racism, but we can mitigate it. And I would add to what uh, Dr. Kaiser, one other particular institution, or I should say uh, creatives that are a part of that, would be black artists and blacks in tech. Not just as entrepreneurs, but the challenge for this technological age is that though it has radicalized us, it also can also manipulate us. And mm -hmm have to have people with a level of not just consciousness and spiritual integrity, but also who have skill and competence to be able to help us navigate so that we are not hacked right. as many of our organizations have been right. Right. and have allowed voter suppression uh, as a result of hacking uh, have allowed manipulation, mm -hmm. and we need our artists, those who are creatives, uh, along with that technological piece, I would add to uh, the five that you mentioned in Addison. Thank you for that, though. Mm. Bishop Moore. Yeah, uh, this has been profound tonight, and uh, sharing this platform with uh, three of the leading voices in this country has just been an honor for me. Um, I wanna thank you again for providing uh, this opportunity. 
Um, I just simply would add to everything that uh, Dr. Moss and Dr. Cosby has said is that our vote provides us the opportunity to impact the policy, whether it's the politician, whether it's the city, whether it's the police, whether it's the policy. Uh, if you don't vote, then your voice is excluded. And so in order for us to agitate for the policy issues that we, uh, we must demand, and it must be consistent uh, and relentless agitation for these issues, but it begins with us voting. This year's election is critical, uh, and uh, many of us will have to be voting by mail, and that needs to occur. You need to understand the laws in your state, and you need to vote because on every level, state, city, federal, every level, uh, there are critical decisions that have to be made that impact our lives. And so let's move this ball forward and uh, begin to agitate for the agitate for the issues that we I need. And whoever is elected in November, and frankly, because of the issues around the Supreme Court, the issues around appointments, there were 200 federal judges appointed and not one was black, not yeah. one in the last three years. Because of the issues of judges, because of the issues of policies today, Trump gutted part of the Fair Housing Act. And one of the ways when I was a pastor, we were able to build up um, units in the hood. We were able to build housing in Mount Vernon was because of the provision under the Fair Housing Act where we were able to get tax credits to ensure low income persons had an opportunity to get into better neighborhoods. That provision was gutted today because of Donald Trump. And so it's more than an individual, whether I like uh, Joe Biden, whether I like Donald Trump, it is about the whole infrastructure that comes along with it. Tens of thousands of federal jobs and who will most likely take a call from a Kevin Cosby, an Otis Moss, who most likely will meet with a Darren Moore, a Talbot Swan, so that we can push the issues and agitate for the issues of our people. We have to ask ourselves that. And that's why I feel it's essential that we get out and vote, or if we don't get out and vote, we mail in our votes uh, to make a difference. Mm -hmm. I want to I want to thank each of you for taking time out of your schedule. I know even in the middle of pandemic, uh, you're extremely busy. And just the fact that um, that you consented to come on. Uh, I'm so grateful. Um, uh, you are three of the greatest preachers in America, um, some of the most brilliant minds in our community. Uh, and you're each doing great work in your respective circles. And I just want to extend to you my appreciation. Uh, for taking the time to come out and to share uh, with our listening audience. Appreciate you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Take care, guys. Take care. Good to, see you. Good to see you guys. Take care, y'all. Take care, Doc. Okay. To the rest of our listening audience, listen, um, I want to remind you that on Sunday, we'll be streaming live from the Spring of Hope Church at 11 o'clock uh, a.m., uh, so you definitely want to tune in. We'll be back on board with our Wednesday night Bible study at 7 p.m. 
uh, on next week. And listen, every one of these conversations that we've had in the Bishop's Barbecue, um, you can check them out on our podcast. We've got a brand new podcast uh, that's called the Bishop's Barbecue that goes back to the first one uh, that we held back in June and we'll have everyone. And then we will do them periodically uh, and include those on the podcast. So go right now, wherever you stream podcasts on um, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google, wherever you get them from and subscribe right now to the Bishop's Barbecue. It's been my pleasure being with you. I want to once again, uh, thank my very special guests, uh, Dr. Otis Moss III, uh, Dr. Kevin Cosby, uh, and the Bishop Darren Moore for taking the time to be with us uh, and to inspire us on this evening. And until the next time I talk to you and you talk to me, always remember, God loves you and so do I.